From FP Studios and the Climate Investment Funds, this is Heat of the Moment. I'm John Sutter. On today's episode, what can be done when the climate crisis disrupts lives? Later on in the program, we're going to visit Ghana, where a relatively new method of cocoa farming is aiming to mitigate climate change and draw farmers back to the land. But first, what happens when the climate crisis not only disrupts your way of life, but nearly obliterates it? That's what happened in 2017 when Hurricane Maria hit the small Caribbean country of Dominica. The hurricane destroyed the power lines. There's been no electricity for a week. Supermarkets are flattened, leaving little food. It's clear Dominica will need the world's help to rebuild. Not for days, not months, but for years. Our guest today is Ama Francis. She's from Dominica, but is living now in New York where she's a climate law fellow at the Sabin Center for Climate Change Law at Columbia University. She's devoted her studies to finding legal mechanisms to open up pathways for people who have to migrate because of climate change. And that includes her family. So tell me a little bit about the work that you've done in Dominica and just sort of your experience growing up there and then particularly, you know, watching what happened after Hurricane Maria in 2017, right? Dominica was really intensely hit by that storm. Yeah, we were wiped out. Um, 90% of our roofs were lost or destroyed. 20% of our population had to permanently leave the island after the storm. Um, My granny lived without her roof for months. So um, yeah, we lost 224% of our GDP. So I, I love Dominica. It's one of the most beautiful places on earth, truly. Mm. Uh, it's lush. It's filled with mountains and rivers and waterfalls and beaches. And it was really a privilege to be able to grow up there. We're a small island in the Caribbean and climate change is, is one of our biggest threats, like many other islands, both in the Caribbean and in the Pacific. And I think we, before Hurricane Maria, I thought of climate change as sort of a distant threat, but Mm. after Hurricane Maria realized how much of an immediate threat it is to our island and other island nations. Um, 20% of our population had to leave the island because their homes were destroyed or they lost their jobs after this storm. 20% is a giant chunk. Yeah, exactly. And so in terms of gross numbers, island states tend to have fewer people displaced in comparison to Asian countries, for example. But per Mm -hmm. capita, islands are actually the top 10 most severely impacted by displacement risk in the world. Mm -hmm. So even before Hurricane Dorian hit the Bahamas, for example, um, the Internal Displacement Monitoring Center was already reporting that 5.9% of the Bahamas population will be internally displaced every single year by sudden onset events like hurricanes. I guess, how do you think we should be thinking about the instability that can happen when, you know, large chunks of people do move, large numbers of people move in the aftermath of a, of a storm? Like in a case like that, that seems like that could be really destabilizing. Yeah, um, it is. And, and the effects of that are witnessed and experienced for generations. And so when our last major hurricane in Dominica was in 1979, Hurricane David, and there are still families that don't live in Dominica because they they couldn't go to school for months and so had to leave. Um, and so the effects of people being displaced by climate-related events are felt for generations. And 
you can talk about this in terms of development. Losing that chunk of your population can set back decades of development gains. Um, it erodes your tax base, so makes it more difficult for the government to sustain services because they're just not pulling in the same revenue. Um, yeah, it's a problem. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, it seems like it's a big challenge for the the governments that are losing population, right? And then, you know, for people who are displaced in an emergency situation like that, it's not like hurricanes are like a one moment event, right? Like that, right. that really has ripples that are far reaching. Yeah. And I think that's why I, I, I think a lot of governments um, in this space who actively care about migration or developing policies try to develop national guidelines and policies that reduce displacement risk, which just means developing policies that help people stay in place. And there have been a number of governments in the Pacific, for example, who have done this, like Fiji, um, that are trying to think about ways to help their populations stay in place. And that's that's good if you have a connection to homeland and, and want to stay. And it's also good for creating political and social stability in a country. Um, that being said, there are going to be times when people need to move. And, and more than that, often these measures that help to build climate resilience or help people to stay in place are really expensive. And developing country governments often don't have the resources to do that sort of work. So for example, or even individuals might not have the resources to do that. So when you're talking about having someone comply with building codes, for example, that would help their house withstand a Category 5 hurricane, they might just not have the resources to choose the materials or buy the materials that would help their house withstand a really strong storm. Mm -hmm. And so I think in talking about this, it's also important to highlight the need for economic support in programs and measures that help people stay in place. So... I hope that, you know, your family is all okay now and that your grandmother is still, you know, like has a safe place to live. I mean, tell me what, what's the latest. Yeah. Um, my mom left the island. My dad stayed behind to rebuild our house and we're still in the process of rebuilding. And I just want to make clear that we were lucky. My family's safe and many others weren't as lucky even when they were forced to move and people lost their lives as well. And I think my family's experience goes to show that if we plan for migration or if we give people opportunities to move and find new jobs in different places, that migration actually doesn't need to be an experience of despair. It can actually be an opportunity for both the person moving, um, for the sending community, and also for the receiving country. That's interesting. So tell me a little bit more about that. Yeah. So migration doesn't have to be a negative experience if, if we plan for it. What we need right now, I think, are laws and policies that allow people to move before disaster strikes. Um, and this allows migration to become an adaptation strategy. It helps people adapt to climate change. So this can look like a number of things. It can mean increasing the number of opportunities people have for moving before a climate-related disaster. And allowing people to move in advance of a disaster affirms, in my opinion, human dignity. It allows people to choose when to move instead of having to move in response to having no other choice. 
So Canada, for example, has identified that it has a small per capita population, an aging population, and it cannot grow economically without increased immigration. Hmm. And so that's an opportunity. So we have people who need to move out of vulnerable places, and we also have countries that need migrants to support economic growth as long as we're structuring legal policy so that people can move in a way where their rights are being protected. Hmm. I think it's a win-win situation. We can match labor gaps, for example, to opportunities where people are threatened um, and experiencing climate impacts already. I mean, it seems like this situation where there aren't clear rights defined for climate migrants, where you you don't necessarily have a place to go if you're displaced by um, a storm or by sea level rise or whatever it is. Right. I mean, it seems like the, there's like potential for like political tensions in a best case scenario or actually like conflict in a case where where, you know, you had hundreds of thousands or, or millions of people displaced in a really big drought or storm. Yeah. So there are a few ways, I think, to answer this. I think the first is to acknowledge that a lot of the discourse and conversation around migration tends to underline the security dimension of movement of people. Um, so either frames immigrants as threats or talks about migration in terms of the political instability it will create. Hmm. And to be quite honest, I'm I'm hesitant to frame migration that way because across world history, we've seen that people have been moving from for as long as humans have been around. Migration is really natural and it's not so much that migration is the problem, but that the we haven't set up legal structures that support people moving freely around. Interesting. Okay. One thing I'm really excited about is uh, what's called free movement agreements. And free movement agreements are trade agreements that have provisions within them that make it easier for people to move from state to state that have consented to increase migration opportunities for people within the collective. Hmm. Um, Are there examples of that? Yeah, the the European Union is the most well-known example, Mm -hmm. uh, but 120 countries around the world participate in some sort of free movement agreement. And it's important to just clarify here that I'm not talking about open borders. These are regional trade agreements that are already in place that allow people to move often for work. And so they might look like lifting visa restrictions, allowing people to enter another country without needing a visa, or it might look like re- taking removing the requirement for a work permit so you could go to another place to work without having to apply for a permit, for example. So I, I want to ask about another line of thinking around this, which is the, yeah. you know, like USAID and, you know, some other international development agencies, they spend quite a lot of money trying to help people essentially stay in place. Like I was down in Honduras about a year ago um, talking to people, uh, you know, in communities that were really hit by a drought, um, you know, and where people were fleeing north towards Mexico and the United States ultimately. Um, And in and around there, there are, you know, there are programs from various agencies to try to help farmers set up drip irrigation systems or other plans to help make them more resilient to increasing drought in that case or, you know, whatever the effect of of climate change in that area might be. What do you think about international efforts to help people stay in place? Being someone who 
has migrated myself. I, I was born and raised in Dominica, but my family's lived in Canada. I, I spent about 10 years of my life at school in the U.S., and, and now I work in New York. Um, I miss home. Mm. Like, it would be great if I could have a job that I found rewarding um, close to my family in my home context in the sun. Like, I would love that. <laughs> um, but th that's just not my situation in reality. And so on the one hand, yes, I support people's right to stay in place. I think it's really important that when we're talking about climate migration, we're also highlighting that many people want to stay in place and don't want to move. And many people also have really deep connections to their homelands for spiritual or religious reasons. That means that moving is not just about displacement, it's it's about disconnection from a whole lineage of ancestry. Mm. Um, and so it's important to protect people's right and ability to stay in place. And I think that's noble and, and really important. Dominica, for example, after Hurricane Maria pledged to become the first climate resilient nation in the world and, and is doing things like switching to solar power and bearing utility cables and trying to switch building codes to make the country more resilient to the impacts of climate change so that people are not displaced by every Category 5 hurricane that comes through. And so I do think we need to support people's right to stay in place while also creating opportunities for people to seek jobs and education and, and access to their families who might have already migrated um, before. And I just want to, again, sort of underscore the the enormity of this challenge. Um, what's known about the future in, in terms of the scope? Yeah. So, you know, the World Bank recently came out with a report that says that we'll have 143 people forced to move within their own countries because of climate change. 143 uh, million people? Million by 2050. Yeah. In just three regions, Asia, Sub-Saharan, Africa, and Latin America. Wow. Um, and that's just three regions that doesn't even cover islanders, for example, um, and it doesn't cover cross-border displacement, so people who are forced to leave home. And so this is just to say that the numbers are huge. And we also know that as climate impacts intensify and worsen, more people will have to move. And I say as climate impacts intensify and worsen, not could worsen, because the fact is right now we're not on track to reduce global emissions. And so because we know this, this is where we're at right now, we will have more and more climate migrants. And so we're in the millions right now, but I think those numbers could go up. Do you think that there's anything that the rich and historically like high polluting countries owe other parts of the world where people either are being displaced now or are likely to be displaced, um, either in terms of opening their borders a bit or in terms of, you know, resources to become more resilient and to adapt in place? Yeah, I think there's a way to look at, there's a story you could tell about climate change um, that's one of the big kid in the yard hoarding all the toys. <laughs> um, and I do think there's a lot of resource sharing that needs to happen, both in terms of financial support um, and also in terms of allowing people access to jobs and education and opportunities in, in places that have a lot more resources than others because it's a robbing of the global commons. And given that theft, I think it's really important from an equity perspective to make sure that the big kid in the yard with all the toys shares those toys. 
Ama Francis, thank you so much. I really appreciate you having this conversation. Thanks so much, John. It's been a pleasure. Hey, I want to tell you about a podcast called Living on Earth. It really is one of my favorites, a truly essential show about the most impressing environmental issues of our time. This week, Mark Grossman from the United Farm Workers discusses the plight of people whose jobs expose them to COVID-19. The circumstances under which farm workers live, commute, and work make them uniquely vulnerable to the pandemic. So it's very difficult. That's Living on Earth. Listen on public radio or wherever you get your podcasts. We just heard Ama Francis discussing the idea of migration as one possible solution to the disastrous effects of climate change a way for people to find safer ground. There are others, however, who are investing in technologies and programs that aim to get people to stay where they are, even as the ground shifts beneath their feet. This brings us to Ghana. Like many countries in the world, this West African nation has a staggering youth unemployment rate. A surplus of qualified graduates has contributed to thousands of people risking everything to seek economic opportunity in Europe. Throw in climate change, which is hurting farmers, and you've got a dangerous mix. Philip Nilarti visited the Bono region of Ghana to see how a program aimed at revolutionizing the cocoa industry is fighting climate change and giving people a reason to stay. I'm with Kenneth Ejeyebwa as he walks around his farm about 200 miles northwest of the capital Accra. Kenneth is carrying a machete as he works during this dry season. Ghana is the world's second largest producer of cocoa beans 13% of the country's total population relies on the industry for their livelihood. But what makes Kenneth's farm different are the tall trees that are interspersed among the smaller, evergreen cocoa trees, providing something very important. The trees, I understand from my uh, research, understand that it provides the cocoa with shade. The shade trees accomplish two things. They boost the farm's yield, and they help Ghana in its fight against deforestation. The country is losing about 2% of its forest every year, and clear-cutting for cocoa farming is a major reason why. If farmers across the country can be persuaded that trees are their friends, economically speaking, it could make a big difference. Even if I don't know much, I know that in the forest area there are more rains, so if we help in developing our forest, it's going to be beneficial to um, the whole world, the whole world, yeah, in general, because it's not the climate change doesn't affect only Ghana or my community. It affects the whole world. So if we are helping to solve that problem and I'm gaining experience and income from there, I think it's, it's a good cause. Kenneth never intended to be a farmer. Four years ago, he graduated from the University of Professional Studies Accra in Ghana with a degree in accounting, but like many of his classmates, he was unable to find a job in his field. With no options, he found himself seriously considering a risky plan. Which country were you looking at going? The target get to Spain. Spain, he says. This was in 2017. The previous year, 5,636 Ghanaians had made the dangerous journey to Europe, going first to Libya, and then crossing to Italy illegally by boat. Kenneth knew one person, a friend, who had attempted it unsuccessfully and at a great financial cost. When he went, he had some issues, and then they brought him back. But after he heard about SIF, the Climate Investment Fund and its 
Forest Investment Program, known as FIP, Kenneth had a change of mind and plan. He had farming roots through his grandmother, and so with FIP's support, he was convinced to give smart cocoa farming a try. I joined them, and then we all plant the trees. So when we are in the farm, they, they teach me how to plan and then how to manage the trees. His farm is modest in size, about two hectares, roughly the size of three football fields. That's football in the Ghanaian sense of the word. But still, he is proud to own it and proud of the income he makes from it. If he had made it to Spain, he says, his options for work would have been limited. He expects he would have started driving to make a living. If it wasn't FIP, maybe I wouldn't be in Ghana right now. It might be I might something that might have me to me. But by grace of faith, I'm here today. Modern, sustainable cocoa farming isn't just for young Ghanaians who have small tracts of land. It's also catching on with big-time farmers like 67-year-old Nana Ameya Paswa. He returned to Ghana in 2010 to acquire land and start a farm after nearly four decades in the United States. To tell you the truth, I love America and I enjoyed my 38 years of staying there, but it was my goal to move back to Ghana and bring what I learned from America here so the youth can really emulate what I learned from there. Nana owns a 300-acre farm about an hour and a half drive away from Kenneth's. Clad in a brown cowboy hat, red polo shirt, black trousers and boots, Nana looks all ready to begin the day's activities on a portion of his farm. It's so dry that, uh, you know... Uh, Walking through his farm serves as a form of exercise for him on a daily basis. Nana is on a mission today to inspect the shade trees. Last year, he planted tens of thousands of Terminania superba. These are fast-growing trees provided by FIP that will rise above his cocoa trees and protect them from the sun. Because of their rapid growth, they can be logged for profit and quickly replaced. Last year, I planted over 30,000 trees in my farm. And this year, hopefully, some of, you know, some of them couldn't survive, but I'm going to replant it. The, the, you know, the success rate is about 80%. 30,000 trees at that kind of scale. And it becomes clearer how small cocoa farming can start to offset deforestation in Ghana. But it's not enough to just plant them. You need to make sure they flourish. And this is where some of FIP's side projects come in. 42-year-old Ali Mustafa is a farmer. But after his training, he also recently learned how to raise bees. The two jobs are intertwined. Ali believes beekeeping is essential because it aids in pollination. What I've learned is that it's going to help our farm, especially the cocoa farm. The bee, they are going to help us so that the cocoa can have more seeds because of their pollination. Mustafa sees it as a win-win financially. He hopes he will soon cash in on his new skills as he applies them in the field. I believe we will make enough money because you can even watch the cocoa tree over there. It's bee pollination that makes it grow like that. And the bee tree, we are going to get money from it. When we harvest the, bee, the honey, we will get money from it. Cocoa will give us money, honey will give us money. To understand how the government of Ghana is working with SIF to support the program, 
ahead to Accra to visit the Ministry of Lands and Natural Resources on Forestry and Climate Change. An advisor to the Ministry, Musa Abujuam says, Ghana is experiencing a number of direct climate impacts already. All over in Ghana, more cars, more sources of carbon emissions. One of the challenges of climate change in Ghana, I mean, it's beginning to be very apparent, is that trees getting lost along our river banks and therefore waters flow and cause flooding in, in the country and then much more diseased plants. There has long been a major hurdle when it comes to convincing farmers here to widely adopt sustainable farming. Most farmers don't officially own the land they plant on, so there is nothing to stop timber contractors from coming through and logging in a tree that grow outside of a reserve, potentially destroying their crops in the process and offering no compensation. In the absence of some sort of benefit-sharing arrangement, most Ghanaians would rather keep their farms tree-free. Drum says this program will provide more incentive to farmers. We're changing policy to make farmers benefit. If you plant your tree, you own it. It's not only through FIB that farmers can claim ownership of trees they've planted. A number of forestry commission initiatives are working to encourage these arrangements between farmers and landowners. Ghana aims to incorporate trees into 3.75 million hectares of agricultural landscape by 2040. I am Philip Nilate in Ghana. Next week on Heat of the Moment, tackling the climate crisis isn't just about how we travel or where we get our energy. It's also about how we live. If you can solve affordable housing, transportation, and climate change with one strategy, that strategy has a lot more potence. A look at new urbanism and the global movement to make our cities more sustainable. That's next week on Heat of the Moment. That's it for this episode of Heat of the Moment, which is a co-production of FP Studios and the Climate Investment Funds. The opinions expressed in this series do not necessarily represent the stance of foreign policy, the Climate Investment Funds, or their partners. Our podcast is produced by myself and Emily Johnson, with help from Scott Andrews and Dan Haverty. Special thanks to KUER and KCPW in Salt Lake City and WABE in Atlanta for their assistance. The director of FP Studios is Rob Sachs. I'm John Sutter. Thank you for listening.